Before Jesus was taken to be crucified, he prayed for his disciples and for us. He said, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. What does this perfect unity look like, church? What does it mean to become one? delighted to see your faces this morning and very honored to be able to share the next message in our one series today. And we are so grateful for all of our guests and visitors here today to celebrate these beautiful baptisms. And I think this message is going to really prepare our hearts to, to fully grasp the beauty of what we're going to witness today. So I'm really, really excited to share it. So this one series um, is a brave and beautiful exploration of this prayer of Jesus for the church, for his disciples, for all disciples that are ever to come to become one. And I'm honored and grateful to be on the journey with you guys. And I think in this series so far, we've learned some life-changing truths, right? So if you weren't here for our first two messages of this series and what we talk about today resonates with you, I would really, really recommend that you go back and listen to the first two uh, messages on our podcast because the first week, Brett talked about this prayer of Jesus and he painted the picture of this vision of unity, of this vision of Christ followers truly becoming one in such a way that God would seem real to people. Like, that is a brave and important prayer, and it's literally the last prayer that Jesus prayed with his disciples before he went to die. And so Brett talked to us about what that unity could look like and what it means to wrestle, to wrestle with that idea. Because that idea, as we know in our culture, in our world, in the greater church community, is hard. That does not seem like an easy concept, and it does not seem like something that exists in very many places, but it is what Jesus prayed for, right? So Brett talked to us about the wrestling. And then last week, Benjamin talked to us about the line in the sand. What lines in the sand do we draw? In an effort, we think we're in an effort to be unified in truth, but in actuality, we're drawing lines in the sand that are separating us. And Benjamin reminded us that for Jesus, there was only one line, the line between God and us. And that's the line that Jesus came to erase. And we talked about his encounter with the prostitute and the Pharisees and what he did there. We talked about how Jesus uses an invitation to communication for transformation, right? And we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. And we talked about how Jesus spoke the truth of grace and the truth from grace. It wasn't one or the other for Jesus. It was all of both, right? And so that brings us to today. And I think after hearing Benjamin's message last week, we have a little better idea of what this unity could be like. That makes sense to us, right? To 
to wipe away those lines like Jesus did and to look at God the Father that way. So we have some sort of vision painted in our minds and in our hearts of what this unity could look like. But that brings us to today. And today the question is, what is this space that we really hold? We talked about making spaces instead of lines last week, but what is that space? What does that space really look like? What is the space that Jesus came to make look like? And aren't there lines we can't cross? Aren't there boundaries we need to have? There need to be some, right? So the question we're asking today is, what is the hill that we die on? What is the hill that we die on? In this effort to live the Jesus way, in this effort to become unified, what hill do we die on? And those are good and important questions, and we are going to look at some answers today. But first, I'm going to tell you a story. So I have two daughters. My youngest daughter is named Kayla. She is seven. And a couple weeks ago, she had had a really, really awful day at school. She is having trouble transitioning into second grade, trouble with friends and on the playground and being rejected, and it was just a really, really, really rough day. And I picked her up from school that day, and I was listening to all these stories of rejection and how she lost her one and only friend in the class, and my heart was devastated for her. And we were on our way to go get her eyes checked because she needed an eye exam because she's also been struggling with her studies. So we went for the eye exam. Turns out she also needs glasses. So I'm definitely feeling like a bit of a mother failure here. She's had a rough day. Now she needs glasses. Like, this day is just lost, right? It's a horrible day. So I'm in the eye doctor checking out, paying the fee for, for the exam. And I hear Kayla talking behind me. And I hear her saying, I just love your shirt. I just love your shorts. And I love your shoes. And I love your hair. And she's just talking. And I turn around. And there is this guy sitting there. And he is not a happy person. He was wearing a gray, like, ratty t-shirt gray shorts, gray shoes, like everything about him was gray. His hair was gray. It was cut in this very strange, like half buzz cut, half, it was a strange do. And I'm looking at, at him and I'm looking at her and she is just pouring out this love on him, not like in a tongue in cheek sort of way, like in a genuine, like she saw this man sitting there broken and lonely like you could tell on his face, he was alone in the world. And she's talking to him and telling him how much she loves his, his shirt and his shoes and his hair and asking him where he bought his shoes and asking him how he cut his hair. And I'm like, what is going on? And then the man starts to cry. He literally starts to cry there in the lens crafters because this child is like speaking love to him. And it was the most amazing thing that I've ever seen. Like on this day where she's been rejected, where she's found that she's got physical brokenness, she's sitting there pouring out love on a stranger. And like my heart was like so overjoyed in that moment. But also like it was like this moment of perfection, like this moment of longing, like this is how we're meant to live. This is how we're meant to live. Like that kid crossed over whatever kind of lines that she didn't even know existed with this guy, to just overwhelm him with love. And he's crying there, and he's calling her precious, and he's like, you're the mother of precious. And it was just like the most amazing moment. And like, 
it, that prayer of Jesus that day came so alive to me. Like when Jesus prayed for like unity so profound that people would know that God is real and that he loves them, like I saw it that day with this little kid pouring out love on a stranger. And it inspired me and encouraged me to long to be the same. So with that picture of compassion, of love, poured out across lines that we don't even know exist, with that picture, we're going to have our conversation today. So the question is, if we're going to pick a fight with the darkness, which I think we should, if we're going to pick a fight with the darkness, what is the hill we're going to die on? What's the hill? Now, over the years, people have invited me to climb hills with them, right? The hill of this doctrine, the hill of that decision. They've tried to convince me that those were the hills to die on, right? And I can tell you, I have people that I admire and respect on both sides of so many issues that have tried to convince me to climb those hills with them. And I'm willing to bet that you probably have too, right? You probably have had people encourage you up hills too. And I have begged God over the years. God, you got to show me. You got to show me. Like, if there's a hill that I'm supposed to climb, if there's a hill that I'm supposed to die on, you have to birth that passion in me. And then I will follow you right up that hill. But you have to show me where it is, right? And I believe that if we ask him for clarity like that, he gives it to us. And so we're going to articulate what I believe the answer to that is today. But first, before we talk about what hill we're going to die on, we're going to look at the hill that Jesus died on, right? Because I'm pretty sure that's where that saying comes from, because Jesus died on a hill for us. So what hill did Jesus die on? I think he died on the hill that erased that line between God and humanity, right? That opened the space for us to find union with God, just as we were originally created for, right? So I think that this death, his death, is the death that we need to study, and that's the hill that we need to study, and probably none of the other ones matter nearly as much as that one. So we're going to look at Jesus' journey to the cross today, and we're going to look at what he did on the way to the cross. And I think we're going to see that what he did was open up that space again and again for people to see him, for people to see him as he really is. That's what he longed for. At the table with the disciples before he went to the garden, he was washing their feet, and he told them what was to come, right? And he knew that Judas was going to betray him, and he knew that Peter was going to deny him, and he knew that literally while those disciples were sitting there and he was telling them what he was about to do, none of them really understood. All of them still had a different picture of what Jesus really came to do and the kingdom that he really came to create. But he told them again and again, and he opened that space for them to see him as he really was. And then in the garden, he invited the disciples to pray with him, They kept falling asleep, right? But even though they kept falling asleep, he kept inviting them. He kept inviting them to pray with him, to be with him, right? And he gave them space to see him as he really is. And then the slave gets his ear chopped off by Peter, right? And Jesus heals the slave. And he says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. This is not the way 
This is not the kingdom I came to create. See me as I really am. Right? Then the soldiers take him, and first they take him to the high priest. And we're going to look in Matthew 26, because Jesus was taken before Caiaphas. That was his first inquisition. And in Matthew 26, we're going to pick it up here. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you have said it. And in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, blasphemy. Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists, and some slapped him, jeering, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who hit you that time? Jesus is standing there, silent against all the accusations, until finally someone speaks the truth. They speak it not because they believe it's truth, but they speak it, and he affirms it. And then they beat him, and they convict him guilty, and they send him to Pilate. They try and disgrace him. They call him a blasphemer, but he still holds open the space. He still holds open the space for people to see him as he is. Then he goes to Pilate, and the exchange between Jesus and Pilate, who was the Roman, who was in charge of the Romans at the time, it's both heartbreaking and beautiful because Pilate does not want to convict Jesus Pilate doesn't think that Jesus has done anything wrong, but the people are demanding that he be crucified, right? And in John 18, we see part of their conversation together. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate asks the very important question. What is truth? What is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Of course, then the Jews continue to demand that he's crucified, and Pilate finally convicts him because Pilate can't, he can't break through the fog to see the truth. He's looking for it, but he won't see it. But Jesus is still standing there, opening the space for someone, anyone, to see him as he is, the Son of God, the Messiah, right? the very last person he speaks to. None of these people so far, the table, the garden, Caiaphas, Pilate, all along the way, Jesus has been holding open that space and they have not been seeing him. They have not been understanding who he is. But the very last person he speaks to, the thief on the cross. In Luke 23, it says, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. 
Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he's really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too, offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging behind him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested. Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. And that's the end of their interaction. This thief on the cross, the one man who really saw Jesus as he truly was, the one man who realized that this is the Son of God, he's done nothing wrong, and he asked him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, not the kingdom that the whole world thought he was coming into, but the kingdom of God, right? And Jesus promises him redemption in that moment because he sees Jesus as he truly is. And that's it. The man did not need to say specific words. He didn't need to re recite a specific creed. He didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to prove that he had some sort of promise not to sin no more. He didn't have to give a lengthy account of his wrongdoings. All he had to do was to see Jesus as he really was and ask him to remember him in the kingdom of God. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this is the hill that Jesus died on. Right? So I think what we can learn from this is that the hill we die on is the hill that points to the truth that Christ in us has the power to redeem and to bring us into peace with God. The hill that points to the truth that Christ in us has the power to redeem and to bring us into peace with God. If I'm going to stand my ground on something, if I'm going to choose a hill to die on, it's going to be the one that points to Jesus. And not just pointing to Jesus, but it's going to be the one that holds the space for others to come and see him as he is. To come and see him as the Son of God. To come and receive him, receive his invitation for communication and transformation. That's the hill that I'm willing to die on. Because the truth is that his spirit in us is what transforms us. The hill is Jesus, right? So remember in the book of John, the book's 21 chapters long, and five of those 21 chapters that detail the whole entire life of Jesus are one conversation that he had with his disciples right before he died. And this prayer that he prayed is part of that conversation, okay? But right before he prays that prayer for unity, he says these words. Let's look in John 16. But now I am going away to the one who sent me. And not one of you is asking where I am going. 
Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Did you catch what Jesus wants them to hear about sin and righteousness and judgment? What he's saying is that he stands in this open space and invites us to see him as he is, and the sin is the not receiving. The sin is the not seeing. That's the sin he's talking about. And the righteousness is ours not because of what we do, but because of who he is, right? And the judgment is delivered because the darkness has already been defeated. Then he goes on. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said, the spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Do we hear what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, there are things that I want to tell you, but you can't, you won't, you won't understand them right now. You can't handle them right now. So I'm sending my spirit to be with you when I leave. And the spirit that I leave you will continue to teach you and guide you. That is what he is saying, right? Now, we know this. If we've been around the church, if we've been around the teachings of Jesus, we know this. But my question is, do we believe it? Do we live like it? Do we believe and live like the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is alive in us? Because that's why he died. He said, it is good that I die, because when I die, the Spirit will come and the Spirit will dwell in you. That's why he died. So his Spirit can live in us. John puts it this way in his letter to the church. In 1 John, he says, you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. I am writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Now, we're going to baptize some kids today. We're going to baptize some people today. And there's a lot of things that are really important to teach our kids that we're baptizing, right? We'll teach them about sin, and we'll teach them about choices, and we'll teach them about consequences, and we'll teach them about the enemy, and we'll teach them about what it looks to what it looks to live like Jesus. And we'll teach them about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We will teach them all those things. But if we don't teach them this thing, if we don't teach them that Christ Jesus is alive in them, then they're missing it. 
This is the thing. Christ Jesus, the Spirit of God, is alive in us and in the kids we will baptize today, right? And as he lives in us, we begin to look like him. As he lives in us, we begin to look like him. And that glimpse that I saw in the doctor's office that day of Kayla speaking ridiculous compassion to this man was Jesus alive in her. It was, it was her created as she was meant to be. And we are all meant to be like that. Compassionate, loving lights with Christ alive inside of us. Right? And then we begin to look like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So what hill do we die on? Last week, Benjamin quoted my dad, so I think it's only fair that I quote his dad this week because his dad posted a really amazing quote on Facebook this week and it grasped me and I was like, that is it. So we're going to look at it. He's even getting put on the screen. Alex posted this. We are not to stop someone's journey to God by our convictions before Jesus has even had a chance yet to affect them by who he is. We are not to stop someone's journey to God by our convictions before Jesus has had a chance to affect them by who he is. And this affecting, this transforming, is the process of sanctification. It's the work of sanctification. It's the work of becoming like Christ. And so we're going to learn more about that in our next message of this series because that is a huge part of how we become one. Many believe that the church, the church, has a duty and an obligation to speak the truth, right? To direct the hearts that we shepherd along the Jesus way. And we do, right? We have that duty, and it's the most important work in this world. The most important work. But the responsibility of the church, or a pastor, or a house church leader, or a parent, or a brother, or a sister, the responsibility is not to teach a behavior so well so that those who hear it imitate Jesus. The responsibility is to declare the truth that only Jesus incarnated in us will ever bring about redemption or wholeness or peace with God. That's the only way. Let's look at that again. Our responsibility is not to teach a behavior so well so that those who hear it imitate Jesus. Our responsibility is to declare the truth that only Jesus incarnated in us will ever bring redemption or wholeness or peace with God. And if I don't believe with every single part of my heart that the spirit of Jesus can come alive within a person and transform that person to look like him, then I will not speak from this stage again. That is the hill that I will die on. That is the work of Jesus in us, right? Jesus does the transforming. And I hope that we'll spend our whole life pointing to that truth, right? Now, do we point to him with our teaching? Of course we do. We point to consequences. We teach about sin. We teach about choosing well. And we learn and we study. And that's the great adventure of this life, right? But I hope that every time we open our mouths to speak or lift our hands to help or open our hearts to love, that we point to the one truth, that matters more than anything, the truth of who Jesus really is, the truth that he died to show us, that he's the son of God, 
that he is the redeemer. Now, the series is about becoming one, right? And I've kind of just given a lot of teaching about what Christ does in us, but how necessarily does that help us become one? This is the unity that Jesus prayed for, okay? The understanding of who he is. Because the Jesus way, we talk about the Jesus way a lot. The Jesus way is not finding the path so that we can look like him, so that we can imitate him. That's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is, is the truth that he is alive in us. The Jesus way is allowing God, the Spirit of God, to come alive in us, right? And if we do that, then our unity doesn't come from figuring out how best to look like him. As Brett taught us the first week, that's what has fractured us, us trying to figure out how we should look like him, right? But the unity comes from him actually being alive and transforming us. Because if he's transforming us to look like him, we're going to become more and more unified, right? So the band can come up, and we're going to sing a beautiful song about this hill that Jesus died on. But there is a space today, and Jesus is here in this space. At Circle A, my dad always asked the kids to, to imagine what it would feel like if Jesus himself like, walked through those doors and walked in the room and sat down. And the fact is that he's here. He's here. The spirit of Jesus is here today inviting us. Inviting us to see. To see him as he really is. And to understand the reality that the Jesus way is not about imitation. It's about the incarnation of Christ in us. He invites us to see him as he is. And that is the message I would die for. That's the hill I would die on. It's the one that he died on. So let's pray. God, I pray that these words of truth would not just sound like another sermon we've heard a thousand times about you living in us, but I pray that they would take root in a deeper place, in a truer place, in a place where we long to experience the fullness of that reality, the fullness of what it would feel like to have you alive in us, unifying us, pouring out your love through us to your people. God, I pray that we would have those experiences this week as we look in and we nurture you in us, that you would begin to pour your love out of us and that we would have those experiences where we stop for a moment and we say this is how it was meant to be before the brokenness. God, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would continue to invite us and that we would continue to say yes to you because we long to transform. We long to look like you. So help us today to see you. In your name we pray.